0: If you want to be turning there, Colossians chapter 1. Uh, But part of my reason for that is I think that what we are trying to cover is one of the most central, important truths of the Christian faith, union with Christ. And we started it, um, I guess, four to five weeks ago, I had the first sermon, and then Sterling preached the last Sunday in February, and we came to the first Sunday in March when we had the event in um, Springfield to go up there. Our second Sunday was, of course, Shepherd Group, so we had no evening service. So it's been essentially 21 days since we've looked at this topic. And so I've added uh, I've, anyway, I'm going to do a a hopefully a brief review, and then the other thing I thought about was this is also a communion service, and I, I, I need to be somewhat concise in what I say, but we're going to be doing some review and refreshing of some of the truths we covered, but hopefully adding some new things too. So um, with that. Let me turn as well to Colossians chapter 1, and I want to pick up reading at verse 24, and I'll read into the opening verses of chapter 2. Uh, This is the word of God. Let us give careful attention to its reading. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. That ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Let us pray. Lord, now we... Come to the reading and preaching of your word. Give to me the words necessary to explain, to proclaim this mighty truth of what you have accomplished in saving a people for yourself. Help us to have ears that hear and understand, minds that will Grasp these things, wills that will apply these truths, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John Calvin, I think, had a great grasp of the things of which we speak. This is one quote from him. He says, the first thing to be attended to is That so long as we are without Christ and separated from him, nothing which he suffered and did for the salvation of the human race is of the least benefit to us. To communicate to us the blessings which he received from the Father, he must become ours and dwell in us. Accordingly, he is called our head and the firstborn among many brethren, while on the other hand we are said to be engrafted into him and clothed with him all which he possesses being, as I have said, nothing to us until we become one with him. That, of course, is from the Institutes. And so... That's where we begin our review of this truth, which often, and it was even, now now it was expressly stated here, Paul uses the term, this mystery, this truth that was unknown in former times, now has been revealed and given out by Christ, the head of the church, to be proclaimed in this day, of course, by the apostles and others, and of course, by the church through the, through the uh, ages here, Christ in you. But often it's simply the terms in him, in Christ, sometimes it's in Jesus Christ, um, used well over a hundred times, some think in the Apostle Paul, uh, about 164 distinct Times in his letters, so it obviously was important to the apostle Paul for us to try to come to grips with this. Uh, as as I mentioned, I think in my opening sermon, Paul never refers to believers in Jesus Christ as Christians, but as we just said, repeatedly, time and again. He speaks about people who are in Christ. Okay, so by way of review, when we came to the Sunday night, when we started this, it happened to be a communion time. And that directed, I think providentially, my sermon that night to what I see as a connection between the, the Testaments. I spoke of union with Christ being central to the new covenant Because on that night in which our Lord was betrayed in the Last Supper, both Luke and, of course, in Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 11, it is explicitly mentioned that he stood there and said to his disciples, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you. We'll have that language again tonight. But the new covenant, that language, is only used one time in the Old Testament, and it's in Jeremiah 31. And so that sermon concerned Jeremiah 31. And I mentioned seven things, seven promises, that, and as you can see, I thought it important to start them with ours, trying to make it memorable, but what was promised in the Old Testament that Jesus on that night is saying, I am fulfilling this, I am enacting this covenant. these things are coming into place into being into reality were a reconciliation um, between... In that case, Israel and Judah that were divided, but we sense that in the church, where ethnic groups of all are welcome, regeneration, where in in the language of the um, of Jeremiah, that God will write His law upon our hearts. Note that internal work. A relationship, I will be their God and they will be my people related to God. Revelation of true knowledge, no longer saying, uh, you know, needing to teach each other to know the Lord. They'll all know me, release from sin. I'll forgive their iniquity remaining forever. Uh, We would need to go to those verses, but it speaks about the fact where God says, well, if the sun doesn't rise in the morning, then you can doubt my promises and then of course the renewal of all things it spoke about a renewal of the land and we looked forward the the language in Jeremiah was of such a magnitude that I think it rightly points us to the consummation of all things a new heavens and a new earth and so and this then I just conclude this review of that by a reminder from Hebrews chapter 9. Therefore Jesus Christ. But this becomes important. This becomes important to what we say tonight. As well. Jesus therefore. He, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called. May receive the promised inheritance. Since a death has occurred. That redeems them from the transgressions. Committed <clears throat> under the first covenant. And so. What we see, how, how the Lord spoke, the reason I had Elder Harmon read from John 14, it's a key text where Paul's in-Christ language, I think, is basically drawn from what the Lord Jesus told his disciples that night. I will come to you. We'll send the Spirit. We're going to address some of those things tonight. Okay. So, but there is this now this link between uh, the t- the testaments of our Bible here. So uh, Elder Harmon then, on Sermon 2, had the um, uh, great challenge because it is not easy to summarize a definition of what it means to be in Christ. But he did a, he did a fine job, don't get me wrong. He used the text from Ephesians 3, and I'm going to refer to that, um, the, the latter part, the prayer of that, his text was verses one through 13, and he summarized things under three headings. He, and you see that I've highlighted them there. He mentioned that union with Christ is a spiritual reality and his notes were more extensive than this. I, I asked for a copy of his notes and he gave them to me and I just pulled one of the quotes, um, that helped illuminate these things. So that, um, uh, here's a quote from Louis Burkhoff. I won't read the whole thing, but the union is intimate. It's vital. It's a spiritual union between Christ and his people. He is the source. Jesus is the source of our life and strength, of their blessedness and salvation. Um, If you go to the next page, back page, the second point he made, was that union with Christ is an objective truth. I'm going to repeat that tonight. I think it's important. The quote from Sinclair Ferguson, Having the Spirit is the equivalent, indeed, the very mode of having the incarnate, obedient, crucified, resurrected, and exalted Christ indwelling us. So that we are united to him as he is united to the Father. That is going to be repeated tonight because it lies at the essence of of union with Christ. And then the third point he made is that the union with Christ is a growing experience. And this is simply a matter of of the fact that we start our Christian lives certainly at a point of conversion and there is a maturing process, a growing process as things become more clear, more applicable. We, we get a sense of more of where sin lies and, and erupts in our lives, how to deal with that, things with the church, all of these things. And so it is with this truth as well. So... Uh, having said that, that by way of review, then I start now with um, uh, with with what I want to speak on tonight. Let me ask you a question by way of an illustration first. Uh, if I were to ask you, well, I won't make you. Uh, I won't make you raise your hands, but. Uh, But if if I were to ask you, I'm moving away from the microphone, sorry, Um, do you know that you have forgiveness of sins tonight? Can I get a yes from some of you that you know you have forgiveness of sins in Christ tonight? Yes. Yes, all right. Now, how do you know that? You'll see my question is, how do you know that your sins are forgiven? Did you have a moment, some evening, when somebody spoke to you, spoke the gospel to you, and you, you prayed a prayer, and you went to bed that night, and, and you woke up in the morning, and you reached under your pillow, and lo and behold, there was this leather certificate with a stamp, Kingdom of God, and Gabriel had signed it, Certificate of Forgiveness of Sins, something you know you could handle like that. Anybody like that? I didn't think so. How do we know? We know, don't we? Because we believe the truths contained here. That is the essence of faith, true faith. Faith, uh, our, our confession of faith says that the actions of faith are basically proper responses to the truth revealed in scripture so when promise when we read promises we believe them for their accomplishment when we hear commands in faith we seek to obey them when we hear warnings by faith we say i need to stay away from that i remind us of that because the of the grandeur of the truths contained in this doctrine of union with Christ. They are, as I've mentioned, and will hopefully prove, lay at something of the foundation, and, and though, uh, though astounding, are to be believed just as you believe and, and rely on the promises concerning the forgiveness of your sins. That's why that is there. Now, I've quoted some other texts, just because of that. In other words, does the Bible really say that Jesus Christ is in you and in me if we are his children? Well, we just read from Colossians 127. There it is. You see it on the page before you. I put it in bold. Christ in you, the hope of glory. One of the most individualistic statements of the apostle Paul one of the most insightful uh, uh, verses is Galatians 2 19 and 20 where he he gives us this window into his mindset of how he lives his daily life he says for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God and here it comes I have been crucified with Christ. You can stop there for a moment now and say, wait a minute. How, we're, and we're going to get to that. How does that happen, Paul? You've never died yet. Cru, you know, cru, the word crucified has a meaning to it, a definition. We'll get to that. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but here it comes. The English says, but Christ who lives in me. The Greek text actually says, it puts the verb first. Anyway, I'll say, if we were reading the Greek text, it would say, but he lives in me, the Christ. This, it's this bold statement. Jesus, the Christ, lives in me. And then he goes on and says The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. You see that there. One of the most clear statements is Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3. You'll see that I've quoted it there. Paul is praying that according to the riches of God's glory, that he would grant us to be strengthened with power. This is very important. Through his spirit in your inner being, so that... Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith with a result being rooted and grounded in love. And then one of the ones that I will probably repeat at our communion time from 1 Corinthians 1, 28 through 31 God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He's speaking about the nature of the Corinthian church and really the nature of God's people in general. That, Generally speaking, we're, pretty, we're a pretty run-of-the-mill average lot, maybe even below average in certain categories. And God is choosing those things in order to confound the wisdom and the powerful of the world. But he says now in verse 30, and because of him, and I added the parenthesis just to be sure, God the Father, and because God the, of God the Father, you are in Christ Jesus. There's the language. Now, note, he doesn't say, and I'm going to make a point about this in a moment. It doesn't say you are in Christ Jesus and he gave us a a gift, a present of righteousness, but it says Jesus Christ who, in other words, it's the presence of the risen Christ in his children who becomes to us wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written let the one who boasts boast in the Lord okay so there's and and these passages could be multiplied this is just a sampling of some of the clearest of those that say that and remember how we started why do you know your sins are forgiven well I believe the promises and the statements of the word of God Well, these are the promises and statements of the word of God. Now, I'm going to try something and I'm going to spring it on him because he doesn't know this yet. But I'm going to ask Pastor Will to come up here because I'm going to use him to illustrate some insufficient but popular evangelical views concerning the Christian's relationship with Christ. This is good. The good, the good thing is yeah, yeah. The, 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 good thing, the good thing is is that you really don't have to do anything except stand here and look handsome like okay. you are. OK? So let's take a look, because there are, there are good, solid Christian people that do not live out the fullness and reality of this truth, I'm confident. So one of those. Is, and you'll see my note, it's they understand salvation as being forgiven their sins, and with the consequence now, okay, my sins are forgiven. I'm a Christian, and now I'm going to seek to conform my life to Christ's example. I'm going to listen to his instructions. I'm going to try to obey his instructions. I'm going to ask myself the question, what would Jesus do? And you'll note the dominant motif here is stressing the legal and forensic aspect of salvation, which is a valid doctrine, justification by faith, but ignoring completely what I'm calling these participational, this, the participation in the life of Christ. Truths taught. They are certainly minimized often. And the key thing is now here, and you can picture yourself, maybe you're trying to do things. You're going to make sure you're reading your Bible. You're going to make sure you have the discipline of prayer. You're going to make sure you're, you're doing all of these things, but... At the heart of that mindset is Christ is outside of me still and distant from me. Does that make sense? Okay, see, you didn't have to do anything, just kind of stand there. All right, but here, now, don't stay. We're not done yet. All right. So now here's another one. Salvation as receiving gifts and blessings from Christ, but not Christ himself. And so, for example, our, bro- our pastor, Will, is a believer. He prays and asks God for things. And hold your hand out there. And so, so he wanted his family to travel safely to Pennsylvania, and they did. So there you go. He gets a packet of grace. And uh, he wants to have a good uh, preparation time for his sermon. He prepares a good sermon, so there you go. There's another one. And, um, you know, you want to, what's another thing you want? Uh, Healthy meal. Good, good, good. good. Here's some more meals. See, see. what I'm trying to illustrate here, and I hope this is coming true, is there can be a mindset of objectifying. um, Let me make sure I get to my notes so I say it right here for you. It's salvation as receiving gifts from Christ, but not Christ himself. Salvation is seen as a gift to be apprehended. Follow the language here. Gifts to be apprehended rather than the apprehension of the giver. Are you catching the distinction there? tell me if you're not i don't want to be confusing to you there's a there's a separation between the work of christ and what he's accomplished and the person of christ and so still for that person christ is in the normal day-to-day operation outside of him and distant from him the last one, now this one gets a little subtle, but still it's important. Salvation gives me the blessings promised, is it there? And especially, what wonderful news is this? He, our, our brother Will here knows about Pentecost. He knows about the gift of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to be the Holy Spirit here, and, and he knows I'm here with him. Okay? Not trying to be cute or funny here. But the point is that that person still sees the presence of the Holy Spirit as an abstraction from Jesus Christ. He sees the Holy Spirit as functioning as a replacement for the absent Christ. Jesus is still absent. He's still distant and outside of me. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. See there, all you had to do was stand there. None of those views, and I, anyway, there's a lot of truth to those views. But none of them have gone the distance of what Paul, of what Jesus said, what John will say in his letters, what Paul speaks of when he uses the language of being in Christ. So, now let's, let's look at this more positive statement of biblical union with Christ. And this is where I repeat a little bit of what Elder Harmon did. Biblical union with Christ is simply a fact. One of the fellows that I really like, he is often so quotable, is Alexander McLaren, and he's, from his sermon on Ephesians 3, he says, To begin with, let me say in the plainest, simplest, strongest way I can that that dwelling of Christ in the believing heart is to be regarded as being a plain, literal fact. And I'm going to read the following because some of the ideas of what I got on these misunderstandings came from his statement. Listen to how he analyzes this. A plain literal fact. It is not to be weakened down into any notion of participation in his likeness. Do what Jesus did. Sympathy with his character. He was such a lovely man. Submission to his influence, following his example, listening to his instruction or the like. A dead Plato may so influence his followers, but that is not how a living Christ influences his disciples. It is no mere influence derived and separable from him, however blessed and gracious that influence might be, but it is the presence of his own self exercising influences which are inseparable from his presence and only to be realized when he dwells in us. And he says, I preach and rejoice that I have to preach a Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us, nor do I stop there, but I preach a Christ that is in us dwelling in our hearts, if we be his at all. Okay. A plain fact, the special means by which this union happens, interestingly enough, this is where I, I was find my own views and knowledge of my own personal relationship with the Lord growing. I'm not sure how you would have answered the idea here, but the I think the best answer is the incarnation. Just a few, couple of thoughts there. Jesus comes as into this world as a man. He comes, as we said, the mediator of the new covenant. Paul will say in 1 Timothy 2 5, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. And note how he says this. He says, the man, Christ Jesus. It is precisely because the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, he of, all, of the three persons of the Trinity, he alone took on humanity, entered our existence. And it is because of that, it is through the The portal, I may say this again. I think when we talk about how we are able to experience union with Christ, it is precisely because not that He is God, He is God, but He is the God man. He is the one who entered our existence. The God man, and He enters, He enters as the second Adam. Uh, Romans 5 speaks about those things. As the head of the covenant, he has redeemed a distinct people. And as a mediator, we could go through our confessional documents, which are biblically grounded. And so he is our prophet, our priest, our king. All that Christ did in his earthly life, note this now, all that he did in his earthly life, in union with our flesh, was done vicariously for us, for us. That is why Paul, for instance, can speak of our participation in Christ's death, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement in the past tense. Ephesians 2 is your classic case in point. We have been made alive in Christ. We have been crucified with Christ. We are raised with Christ, past tense. We are seated with Christ in heavenly places, past tense. Why is that? Why can he say that? Because Christ, the Redeemer of God's elect, as the God-man has done that as a man and it is as our Redeemer we are joined with Him. We follow in His train and have followed in His train. The union is that clear, that precise, that definite, that unbreakable. The Holy Spirit brings to us actually this union in reality and I wanted to mention a few things it actually he actually brings us into a present communion with all three persons of the trinity note from john 14 the passage that was read believe me that I am Jesus speaking I am in the father And the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves, then later I I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Okay, there's the Spirit dwelling in that day you will know that i am in my father and you, i am in my father you are in me and i in you well if you try to put that together you realize that you're speaking about not only a union or communion with jesus with the spirit but now the father Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And note this, my father will love him and we will come to him. And I love the language. Make our home with him. I'm going to end with a more lengthy quote from Calvin. But I do this because... As I said, Calvin certainly understood union with Christ as well as any. You know, we're talking now nearly 500 years ago. But I want you to see how he understood, especially the fact that as the perfect human mediator before God, the God man, Calvin sees our union giving us. The very presence of Christ through, as I said, the portal, the doorway of the fact that he is man, that he's human. Listen to this. This litany of benefits of our union with Christ indicated by Calvin. This is, by the way, a quote basically from Calvin's, the end of Calvin's book two, which concerned Jesus Christ and his institutes. Quote, We see that our whole salvation and all its parts are comprehended in Christ. We should therefore take care of deriving even the minutest portion of it, of our salvation, from any other quarter, any other person, any other place. Now, I've highlighted the need, so to speak, And note when he answers, he's answering of earthly historic events of the man, Jesus the Christ. If we seek salvation, we are taught by the very name of Jesus that he possesses it. That name was given him at his birth. If we seek any other gifts of the Spirit, we shall find them in his unction Jesus was a man anointed above measure with the Holy Spirit in his earthly life. Strength in his government, purity in his conception, indulgence in his nativity, in which he was made like us in all respects in order that he might learn to sympathize with us. If we seek redemption, we shall find it in his passion, acquittal, In his condemnation, remission of the curse in his cross, Paul will speak in Galatians that Jesus was cursed because he hung on a tree, the cross, satisfaction, is that what we need? We find it in his sacrifice. Purification in his blood, reconciliation in his descent to hell, mortification of the flesh in his sepulcher, newness of life in his resurrection, immortality also in his resurrection, the inheritance of a celestial kingdom in his entrance into heaven, protection, security, and the abundant supply of all blessings in his kingdom, Secure anticipation of judgment in the power of judging committed to him. In fine, since in him all kinds of blessings are treasured up, let us draw a full supply from him and none from any other quarter. Those who, not satisfied with him alone, entertain various hopes from others, though they may continue to look to him chiefly, by looking to others he says they deviate from the right path by the simple fact that some portion of their thought takes a different direction no distrust of this description can arise once once the abundance of his blessing is properly known maybe we end by just simply asking the question what do you need To live the Christian life. Name it. If you are a child of God here tonight. Name what you need. The indwelling personal Christ. Is there to supply it. Is there to supply it. This is a message of hope. It's a message of ability. It's a message of comfort. It's a message where of security. Our union with him, his human flesh, lives eternally at the throne room of God. That is where we are linked. We will get there. Revelation chapter 7 speaks of an innumerable uncountable number of every nation tongue tribe around the throne and at the center of the throne is the lamb of god jesus the christ that's a picture of the future what what is the future the future is you dwelling there part of that crowd because of your union with jesus the christ And I simply make the statement, all biblical truths are important and relevant. Some have the potential to change in a fundamental way how we live the Christian life. This is one of them, perhaps the chief one. Let us pray.